0: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023 Potential savings will vary Discounts not available in all states and situations Hi, I'm Debbie Millman Canva is great for
1: designing visual content for work no matter what industry or department you work in Canva.com, designed for work. This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. On this program, Debbie Millman talks with Caroline Bowman about her career working in museums, about the massive renovation of the Cooper Hewitt Smithsonian Design Museum, and about why the interest in design has surged in recent years. There's
2: really been an eye-opening moment where people say, aha, this could really improve the world. I want to learn more about this and jump in.
1: Here's Debbie Millman. The original Cooper Union Museum of the Arts of Decoration opened in 1896. Its goal, to provide a place to study decorative arts collections. Since then, much has changed. It's now called the Cooper Hewitt National Design Museum, and its mission is to provide a place to inspire, educate, and empower people through design. The museum's biggest change, however, is still to come. After being closed for three years for a major renovation, the museum is scheduled to reopen in December. Caroline Bowman, the museum's director, has been in charge of this $91 million transformation of Andrew Carnegie's old Fifth Avenue mansion. Caroline Bowman joins me today to talk about the renovation and what it means for the design world. Caroline, welcome to Design Matters. Thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be here, Debbie. So you grew up outside Boston, the daughter of an American mother and a Swiss mother father. How did that unique combination influence you?
2: Well, it was a very unique combination, including how they met. Oh, I always love those backstories. Tell us. Well, since we dove right in with the personal, they were both Fulbright scholars and living in Paris in the late 50s. And they were invited to a Fulbright ball that was a masked ball. So my father came in the likes of Charlie Chaplin with the black tuxedo. And my mother came as a Japanese woman. They met there. And fast forward, we were born in Paris and moved to north of Boston when I was very young. But that unique combination resulted in a real love for culture, a love for objects, a love for experimentation through my father's love for science and physics and engineering. And we were constantly going to France and to Europe for about three months every year. Thanks to having a flexible schedule of a, a father as a professor. So we visited every chateau in France and, you know, we're constantly going to museums and inspired through
1: looking at objects from all ages. So I understand that one advantage of your Swiss heritage was your grandfather's old printing press, which was housed in your basement. I read that when your grandfather wasn't making his own stationery, it became your de facto dollhouse. That is true. But I
2: must say I was quite a nerdy child and all of the different unique pieces of equipment were housed in our basement. What else did you have? The printing press was one of my favorites. So at the age of 5, I was printing my own personalized business cards that just said simply Caroline Bowman obviously. When I bored of typography, which was pretty rarely, I would go into our dark room and develop film alongside my father and one of my brothers who is an architect today. So there was always an activity including um, making a telescope which my older brother Robert was constantly polishing mirrors that would then be inserted into the paraphernalia to make a telescope. And that I was very much kept out of as the little sister creating dust in the basement. So I didn't participate in the telescope making, but I was very active with, with everything else.
1: That must have been quite a basement, a printing press, a dark room. A science lab, that's amazing. And
2: a pretty um, copious supply of French wines as well in the wine cellar, Ah. uh, alongside some architectural models, because we were already very interested, all of us, in architecture, and we would create models of some of the chateaux in France that we had seen, which was a very sad thing to get rid of when my mother just sold this house a couple of years ago.
1: Going back to those little business cards that you made for yourself, (laughs) do you remember what Typography
2: you used? I don't. I'll have to pull those out. I have them somewhere in my supplies. But what I loved especially was not matching the typography, which of course would make all of us quite sick today. But I would, <laughs> I would take different fonts out of different boxes oh, sort and mix of like them ransom together. Note style, exactly, exactly.
1: Now, were they calling cards, or did you have a business?
2: Well, the business started simply as making business cards for others. And then as I got older, I dabbled in different types of businesses from my own Girl Scout cookie venture to selling barrettes that I used to paint, actually. And I had business cards for that as well. So I said
1: nerd. I warned you at the start of this. (laughs) So you were entrepreneurial and creative at the same time. Your background seems to have instilled in you a real love for design as well as I read uh, quite a lot about how you have a love of precision. Was this when you first thought that you might want to work in design or when did that really come to be? No, that
2: love for precision is definitely being half Swiss and half American. So in this same basement, for example, we had these really sturdy old metal cases that belonged to my grandfather and my great-grandfather. And with the most beautiful writing possible were marked, you know, 8-inch hammers, 2-inch screws, certain types and sizes of typography. Everything was super, super organized. And I had to laugh the other day when I was in my brother's home in Brooklyn and I was in his basement. And what did I see? But the very same cases, you know, supplemented by his own beautiful writing explaining, you know, architectural tools and things that he's added to the cases. But this idea of being
1: well organized and precise, um, we were all born with that. I also understand you have a major love affair going on with the old glamorous labels that fancy hotels used to put on suitcases back in the long ago age of luxury travel. And there's quite a a storied past with this in your history as well with your family.
2: Absolutely. My grandparents moved to Great Neck, Long Island in in the early 20s and built a house there, which is what really made us live in two countries in the end. And my grandmother would travel, not only with her three poodles, who she showed on a regular basis, just thinking about it makes me laugh. She bought
1: tickets for the dogs, apparently, right? I believe so. Yes, they had seats. (laughs) So awesome.
2: Yeah. And then these beautiful, beautiful pieces of luggage that were, you know, initialed, but also strewn with these really, really gorgeous, colorful, decorative luggage labels. And I was drawn to those as a very young girl and then would peel them off surreptitiously to form my own collection. And then when she realized I was doing that, she eventually gave me dozens of them. So I
1: continued to peruse flea markets and look for new additions to my collection. So you earned a bachelor's degree in the history of art and French literature from Bates College in Lewiston, Maine, and then a master's degree in medieval art from New York University's Institute of Fine Arts. I understand you devoted your honors thesis to an in-depth study of an exquisitely drawn 15th century devotional book known as A Book of Hours, specifically one produced by the notably artistic Habert Family of France. Did I get that right? Well, you did some digging, didn't you? (laughs) I try. I try. (laughs) So how on earth did you choose that book? Why that book, that one 15th century book? Well, first of all, you're really
2: rewinding the clock here to about, I don't know, 1985 or 1986. Oh, eons ago, Caroline. It was. It was. And what's fun here is my first museum job ever was as a security guard at the Fog Art Museum. No. So I Did you would, have to wear a uniform? I wore a blue polyester uniform. So I would bike from my parents' home and then peel off my shorts and t-shirt for this blue clad, you know, hideous uniform. But my point in telling you this story is I really got to know the collection really well that freshman summer. And I've always been absolutely enamored with the medieval age. And I found this book of hours in the Houghton Library at Harvard that had very little research done on it. So that's when I plunged in. But honestly, I think that being a real urbanite and wanting to live in the city, I was a little frustrated up in Lewiston, Maine, where entertainment on the weekends, no joke, is going to L.L. Bean for a night of, you know, buying flocked sweaters and maybe having a beer or two. So I definitely used the research of this book of ours as an excuse to take my rabbit and drive south and spend the weekend in Boston and write this thesis.
1: When you were in college, were you hoping to go work in a museum? Was that what you envisioned for yourself?
2: My dream was to be a museum curator or a museum director, which is what led me to this master's program at NYU and to moving to New York. And I very much thought I would get my degree and go somewhere else. And here I am many years later. I did move to France a couple of times since then, but
1: for the most part, I've been in New York the entire time. I recently read that the word curate or curator is now one of the most hated words in the (laughs) English language. I'm wondering if you have a sense of why that is. It is overused.
2: It is a very serious specialty that requires years of scholarship and learning about connoisseurship, learning about objects in a very unique way. And there's, I think, positives and negatives to the overuse of the word. The negative is for the sake of this great group of curators worldwide. The positive is we have more people feeling like they too can curate. So in a way, it's a very positive thing because in the end, we want people to feel more
1: creative. And what do you see as the negative
2: That I like to underscore that being a curator requires significant expertise and years of learning.
1: I think my tipping point came when I read an article in a magazine for parents about curating your child's closet. Oh boy, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> a little over the top. <laughs> Definitely. So, Caroline, your first professional job after college was the director of development at the Calhoun School in Manhattan. What did you do there?
2: Actually, my very first job out of graduate school was as the art book editor at George Braziller Publishers. Wow. Okay. Did not uh, know that. Sorry. Well, I missed that. No worries. No worries. And I can't talk about my past and not talk about George Braziller because George is really alone as a publisher back in his day who celebrated the Romanesque, the Gothic, the rarities in the art and design world. George is well into his 90s now, he is still publishing. And because of my French background, he had me at 22 or 23 doing most of the business in France, which was fantastic because I would go and meet with these publishers and talk about how we could co-publish titles. It was obviously excellent experience for a very young person, but also taught me all about publishing and reproduction of medieval manuscripts, which he also really had the market um, doing facsimiles of medieval manuscripts. So I would go to the Pierpont Morgan and check the facsimile with the original page wow. by page. I don't know how allowable or permissible that would be today. But back then, it was a dream come true for someone with a medieval background to be able to look at all of these medieval manuscripts 12 inches away from the page. Did you have to wear the protective gloves? Yes, yes. So that was fantastic. And again, I was in heaven because it was that combination of the museum world, my scholarly background in medieval, and publishing. So it was really a great, great first step. What made you decide to leave? Just change. And, you know, I think when you're that age, you like to, you know, dip your toes into different waters. So between Brazil and Calhoun, I was actually doing some freelancing as an art book editor. So working for Abbeville and Paul Gottlieb at Abrams and the Museum of Modern Art and Calhoun. And so all of those things were sort of coming together. And then I landed this development job as I don't, it was assistant or associate director of development. And then I think a week into the job, the director left and they made me director. I mean, it was sort of, you know, small school thinking, but I learned on the job. And that was my first experience with development and raising money for a nonprofit. And how long were you there before you left and went to MoMA? I think about a year and a half, not a long time. I had worked at MoMA before then, and then they got in touch with me saying,
1: we've got this opportunity, and I was very pleased to, to go back. Now, one of the common denominators in working at the Calhoun School and then MoMA and now at Cooper Hewitt is the need to raise money for the organization. How do you go about doing something like that? Do you just ask people for money?
2: Yes, I just walk down the street and say, the design museum is critical (laughs) to all. Sometimes I feel like doing that, but no, obviously it's a
1: long cultivation process. and And people have a really hard time asking for money. It's a real talent.
2: I think it is, but it's also realizing that you, Debbie Millman, are not asking for money, but you're asking for money on behalf of an institution, something that you wholeheartedly believe in. That takes the weight off a little bit. And that's what I always tell donors or friends of Cooper Hewitt when they're asking money on our behalf is that they are asking for support for the strengthening and continuation of the Smithsonian Design Museum. To get back to your original question, it's all about friend raising rather than fundraising. So at Cooper Hewitt, we do a lot of events to really raise the visibility for the diverse and many programs that we run
1: given any day. So you joined Cooper Hewitt in 2001. What did you come to the Cooper Hewitt to do? Well, in
2: 2001, Paul Thompson was the director of the museum, and he had rung me to say, you know, I've I've heard about you, I'd love to talk to you, and I thought, okay, nothing to lose. And I must say that within four or five minutes of Paul's wonderful character and witty personality, I thought, hmm... I can really imagine working with this man. So I was his director of external affairs, I think, for the first year, and then was quickly made deputy director of the museum. So Paul and I partnered together hip-to-hip over the years, really planning and and laying the groundwork for this massive renovation. As we were witnessing lines around the block— people discouraged because they couldn't get into programs, sold-out event after sold-out event. You know, we were really observing this massive hunger for design and saying, how can we now build up Cooper Hewitt and truly make it America's design museum?
1: What do you attribute this intrigue and fascination about design from the public now, because it does really seem to be a sea change in awareness.
2: I sincerely believe that people outside our community of the design world, people finally understand or are starting to understand how design permeates everything. And it sounds so simple. I mean, Paul Rand said it years ago, you know, design is everywhere. And you think, okay, well, what does that mean? But especially in today's world where designers impact everything that we interact with, you know, from the headphones on our heads to the watches on our wrists to a straw that cleans drinking water in Africa, I think there's really been an eye-opening moment where people say, aha, This could really improve the world,
1: and I want to learn more about this and jump in. Speaking of that straw, the life straw, I read that Forbes determined that the life straw was one of 10 things that could fundamentally change the way humans live on this planet. Exactly. By cleaning dirty water, filtering dirty water, making it drinkable.
2: Exactly, which is why... It is really Cooper Hewitt's responsibility to present these ideas and present these themes in exhibitions like Design with the Other 90%. You know, it's a challenge for Cooper Hewitt. We don't have, you know, the square footage of the Met or MoMA. So how do we dot all of those I's and emphasize our collection of 210,000 objects that spans 30 centuries— but also discuss design from the full scale,
1: from A to Z. So you previously served as the associate director, then the acting director, and the deputy director of the museum between 2006 and 2009, and after director Bill Mogridge died. What was it like to work for Bill? Oh, well, if he were in the room right now,
2: he would say, she didn't work for me. We worked together. So, first and foremost, I think actually he said that to me. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, first and foremost, he was such a humane and caring and thoughtful man. I loved working with him. I loved learning from him. I loved observing how he ran a meeting and how he found solutions to different problems through a different way of thinking. He was such a terrific breath of air for Cooper Hewitt at a pretty stressful time when we we're in the middle of the renovation. And just having someone that didn't come from, you know, 20 years of a museum background, it was a really fresh eye and
1: uh, a real catalyst f- for all of us across all of the departments. Caroline, last year you were formally appointed the fifth director of Cooper Hewitt Smithsonian Design Museum, and now you are spearheading the grand opening of the renovated and expanded museum in December 2014, the biggest transformation the museum has undergone. Can you tell us all about it? My heart still beats many extra beats when people ask me this
2: question. This renovation represents really the opportunity of a lifetime for Cooper Hewitt because we closed the entire campus and we said, let's renew, let's restore, but let's also stop and think, what do we really want to be when we reopen? We needed more space. We needed more efficiency. We needed to become a 21st century museum experience in every single way. We're being excellent stewards of the Andrew Carnegie Mansion. We wanted to expand. We wanted to open the walls up on the third floor, but we also wanted to do it right. Just to give you a few examples, Andrew Carnegie laid the floors in seven different patterns of teak. And over the course of the years, obviously that teak has worn down quite a bit from visitation, from events, etc. So we found 100-year-old teak in Thailand. And we replaced all of the floors in exactly the same pattern as Andrew Carnegie laid them. So anytime anyone dares say to me, why has it taken three years, that's just one of my
1: responses. So I read an article in the Times wherein you stated, looking at the architecture of the building, we've been limited. What made you decide to even stay in the mansion to begin with? That's a key question because anyone in
2: the design community, those of you listening to this, know that to present any contemporary design story, Cooper Hewitt exhibitions team was constantly building walls, yes, to conceal the Georgian architecture, to conceal that decorative side of the mansion, to get people to really focus on the design story we were trying to tell. When we realized that we had the square footage we needed with the footprint that we had, we thought, okay, how can we do this smartly? So by moving the National Design Library from the third floor of the mansion to the townhouses, we now have this uninterrupted space of 6,000 square feet on the third floor. It's exactly what we always needed to present contemporary design.
1: So when you say the townhouses, do you mean the adjacent buildings next yes, to the museum? Yes, on 90th Street, and yes. And so how many of those townhouses does the museum own? So we have 9
2: and 11 East 90th, so two townhouses. That's amazing. We've been really, really fortunate. The collection was housed in those townhouses. So phase one of the project was moving a great majority of our 210,000 object collection to a professional facility in New Jersey that we now lease.
1: So I understand you played a really active role in overseeing the master plan of the renovation, as well as the selection of architects and designers. What kind of process did you undertake and and whom did you ultimately choose to work with? Well, I realized very
2: recently that we've actually been working on this for nearly 10 years, when you think about when the germ for the idea was first born. So all of that really started rolling in 2004, 2005. And then in 2006, we worked on a very intensive master planning process with Bayer Blender Bell, which was fantastic. And yes, we also did travel to Europe. And we looked at several different architects' examples of their work. We met them. We interviewed them. And in the end, Gluckman Maynor Architects were our first choice. And it's been absolutely fantastic working with them
1: personally working on a renovation of a small little home for myself and the stress and intensity that is just embedded in that. I can't even imagine what it would be like for a museum.
2: It's something else. And, you know, we've got an amazing team at Cooper Hewitt. We're all meeting with five or six design teams a day. There are a dozen design teams working on this transformation. And one thing that I'm particularly excited about for the opening is I invited each of the teams to really make up a board of renderings and thoughts and comments talking about their own processes and coming up with this new plan for Cooper Hewitt and how they worked with the team to realize the project. So that will be the opening show for the ground floor, which will just be marvelous.
1: Was there ever a moment throughout this process where you thought, I just don't ever see this ending? I don't ever <laughs> see us actually being able to reopen. I Was there ever one of those? Many more than one,
2: Debbie. I mean, this is a turn-of-the-century mansion. It required a lot of money to make it happen, and it was definitely a slog for many years. And you just had to have faith and vision to really believe in, to continue down the path to make it all happen. But we were also very fortunate because we really had the right people behind us. New York City came in with $14 million. We had never received capital funding from New York City before. What made them decide to change their
1: mind and give you some money? They realized...
2: Cooper Hewitt is energizing Museum Mile, and they're energizing Northern Museum Mile. So it's part of our mission with the new museum to really partner with other museums north of us to
1: send that message home. So do you see a change now in the way that museums are fitting into contemporary culture? There seems to be a real shift from the museum as an institution right. um, for collecting sort of static cultural artifacts to more of an incubator, more of a place of sharing dynamic cultural ideas. Well, first, do you agree? And, and second, if you do, why do you think that this has happened? I
2: absolutely agree. And the key for a museum to fly right now is to go with that and say, "Okay, how can we be more of a community? How can we inspire those ideas? It's very much stress the community. So same idea with all of this interaction that we'll be introducing with the new pen and the 15 digital tables that will be interspersed throughout the museum. We want people to meet each other at Cooper Hewitt. We want people to talk about design and participate as designers at Cooper Hewitt. So it's a whole new way of thinking by embracing this interactivity and embracing the digital world in a whole new way that's not telling you to look at your iPhone and be in your own silo learning about design objects, but rather look around, learn with others, collect
1: objects from the collection, and play designer. Talk about the pen. (laughs) I've been reading about this pen, this magic pen. Talk about the pen. What is this pen? (laughs) Well, getting back to this idea of the
2: closed years at Cooper Hewitt, it gave us time to sit back and think, how can we elementally change the museum visitor's path and experience? What can we inject into this that will be different and really expand the walls of Cooper Hewitt like never before? So that's when the pen idea was born. And it was born very much just like that, like, let's do a pen. The one problem was, and now advantage, no museum is doing it. So the pen does two things. It creates and it collects. So say you see a Bertoya chair that you absolutely love. Debbie, I know you would take out your camera and you'd take a picture of the chair, you'd take a picture of the label, and then you'd probably put it on Facebook or save it to your own collection at home. Well, the pen does everything for you. With a real touch of delicacy, you just hit the label with the end part of the pen that's a diagonal. It vibrates, and all the information about that Bertoya chair is instantly downloaded to your account. Similarly, on the other side of the pen, so the pointy side of the pen, we are working on apps that really encourage you to play a designer. You can draw any line that you would like, from a curvy line to a zigzag line, and what pops up but objects from our collection. We're saying take this digital pen, create, think like a designer, play like a designer, be inspired today at Cooper Hewitt, and keep coming back. You're
1: really changing the entire museum experience. Talk about the name change. I mean, you're changing everything. You're changing the building, you're changing the way we interact, but you're also changing some really basic things, like the name of the museum is now different. We are
2: changing everything, I have to say, and we're really proud of that. We're a place of experimentation, we're a place of positive change. And You know, any one of us speaking for Cooper Hewitt used to get up in front of the audience and say, you know, hello, I'm Caroline Bowman from Smithsonian Institution, Cooper Hewitt, National Design Museum. And you would simply see eyelids, you know, going down. (laughs) So we thought, OK, we've got to make this more succinct. We've got to make this more energetic. So we are now Cooper Hewitt, Smithsonian Design Museum. Alongside that came the whole redesign of the custom typeface. And like making our collection accessible to all, we are making our typeface accessible. In what way? It is online, and you can download the typeface for free. The next step for us is to ask people, how did you use the typeface? And then we want to cite all of those things on the Cooper Hewitt website. So celebrating that freedom and
1: celebrating the fact that we're sharing our assets I think in a in a sort of wonderful, symmetrical turn of events, there's got to be some five-year-old somewhere in their basement <laughs> making a business card out of that typography.
2: Oh, I hope so. I really <laughs> hope
1: so. Caroline, according to Eddie Opara, the new identity plays it really straight. He described it as having no play on visual or theoretical complexity, no puzzling contradiction or ambiguity, no distracting authorship – What made you decide to take that type of approach?
2: We looked at so many fabulous iterations and ideas that Pentagram came up with. And Cooper Hewitt has changed its name many times. We want this one to stay and we want the typeface to stay so that it really becomes the trademark for the institution. We felt that this was strong, frank, energetic, and really underscores design
1: and the importance of the design museum super clearly. You also worked with Myra Kalman to do a number of books that are also coinciding with the opening and renovation. Both books are out right now. Can you talk a little bit about them because they're both magnificent? Oh, I'd be joyous to. <laughs>
2: First of all, they're just gorgeously hand-illustrated depictions of the objects in the collection. And the A to Z book is really, it's meant for children, but I've given it to so many 75-year-olds that absolutely
1: love the book. And it's, it's really from aha to zigzag, right? Exactly. Yes, Exactly.
2: Yes. exactly. So And then we've encouraged children to write to us about how they think a museum should be laid out, with what objects, and we've come up with a little pen name. So I look forward to receiving and reading those letters about what
1: the young children think we should do. So as you are also a member of the Citizen Stamp Advisory Committee for the U.S. Postal Service, do you foresee Cooper Hewitt stamps coming anytime soon? Well...
2: I am a loyal committee member, so i can 't divulge information.
1: Uh-huh. Um, so what happens in the postal committee stays in the postal committee.
2: Very much so until it is announced.
1: Yes, I am proudly taking
2: the role that Jessica Helfand served for so long, and she asked me to take her place as being the ambassador for design and being a very strong voice, trying to improve the quality of the stamps so that we can mirror some European countries' stamps. And we are definitely getting there with some more and more thoughtfully designed stamps, die cut stamps, interestingly colored stamps. So it's pretty terrific.
1: When does the museum officially reopen? What is the date?
2: We will be opening on December 12th, 2014, which is exactly the same day that Andrew Carnegie and his wife and daughter rolled up in a horse carriage to 2 East 91st Street and entered the doors of their new home. So some really nice synergy there.
1: Congratulations, Caroline. The whole world is waiting to see the renovated museum. And we can't wait to welcome everybody back. So thank you, Debbie. Thank you for being on Design Matters. You can find out more about the Cooper Hewitt Smithsonian Design Museum on their website, cooperhewitt.org. I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Nolman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions with technical assistance by Rainey Ortega. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes store.
0: You're growing a business and you can't afford to slow down.